Lord, just uh, give us a good night uh, around your truth, around your word, as we unpack uh, what we're studying tonight. And so, Lord, we just ask that you would be our guide uh, more than anything else. And Lord, we thank you uh, for these who are here. We just ask uh, for your blessing. We pray all this in your son's wonderful and awesome name. Amen. You guys can hear me okay? All right, good enough. So uh, we're embarking on systematic theology, and just to let you know what we're doing exactly, uh, we're going to be exploring this text, Systematic Theology by Wayne Grudem. Uh, There are a lot of different systematic theologies. I'll talk about that in a second. But uh, Wayne's particular work uh, has uh, been around for the last 20 years or so, (coughs) and it's... uh, if you look to buy this, which I would encourage you to have, it's a good book to have on your, your bookshelf. Uh, it'll probably have a different, uh, different cover on it right now. I think they have a paperback that's not too expensive. Hello, come on in. Um, and, uh, but the hardbound one, I, that's what I prefer. And So whatever you can get your, your hand on. Hello, everybody, come on in. <coughs> so uh, we'll be using Systematic Theology by Wayne Grudem. Uh, it's an excellent text. Uh, a lot of seminaries are using this text right now uh, in their schools. And uh, probably the other premier uh, well-renowned systematic theology that's currently in use would be Millard Erickson's Christian Theology. Uh, this is also a very good text. These were, when I was at Trinity, both of these were required reading for the class on systematic theology. The other thing is, as we're uh, breaking down the class uh, by way of our studies, uh, this would be basically, for a seminary level, it would be like a three-semester course to get through first, second, and you know, third systematic theology. So you'd have uh, one, two, and three. So we'll be starting out with just uh, two disciplines we'll be looking at, the first being the doctrine of Scripture, the second being the doctrine of God. Uh, to get things started uh, for this session. Uh, in terms of other systematic theologies that are out there that you should be aware of, uh, probably the, the most notable one that you'll hear theologians refer to is Louis Burkhoff. Uh, he's uh, kind of more from a Reformed discipline. Uh, that's also, this is an excellent text. <coughs> um, let's see here for fun. Uh, old Stalwarts, uh, this is... Uh, Again, if you, are, if you fancy yourself being a theologian, uh, this is the Institutes of the Christi- Christian uh, uh, Religion by John Calvin. This is fantastic stuff. It's actually very good devotional reading. And by the way, as you read it, you'll find out he's not nearly as Calvinistic as people make him out to be, <laughs> which is funny. Um, <clears throat> a different resource uh, by way of an older work is uh, a work by John Owen, who's one of the Puritan uh, authors. This this guy dates, I mean, this thing dates back to uh, 1661, okay? Uh, but again, biblical theology, we'll talk about the distinction between systematic theology and biblical theology a little bit later, but uh, this is a great, actually, just reading the forward of this book is fantastic. It talks about the, the problem of sloth in Christianity. <laughs> we're, 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 lazy students of the word, and uh, he really gets after the student of scripture. That's a great work. 
And then um, probably more contemporary with us uh, would be the likes of Carl F.H. Henry. I didn't bring it all down. This is a six-volume set on God, Revelation, and Authority. It really is a giant systematic theology by Carl F.H. Henry. Uh, There are buildings named after him on Trinity's campus. Uh, I actually had the pleasure of meeting this guy uh, before he passed away back in the in the 90s. Um, Carl F. H. Henry is probably the the father of modern day evangelicalism back in the 50s. He was the handpicked uh, the first managing editor for Christianity Today, handpicked by Billy Graham back in the day. Uh, so uh, he went to Wheaton College. Pretty sharp dude. Um, then, in terms of way back in the way way back machine. Uh, <coughs> I brought one down. This is a a three-volume set, Systematic Theology by Hodge. This dates back to 1871. I have all three volumes, and you can still buy this. You can still buy it in a new copy. So I got the whole set here um, if you're interested in having more awesomeness around you. So with that, here's a sign-in. Feel free to sign in so we know you're here. And also here's a course outline. And uh, Josh, you can take one and pass it around. And then here's a fill-in-the-blank guide for tonight. And uh, we'll get those going, too. So, welcome. Come on in. Glad to have you. Welcome, welcome, welcome. We're just getting started. So, again, I do encourage you, uh, if you don't have this particular book, Systematic Theology by Wayne Grudem, uh, we're going to be using this as our basis. I, I will say this about Wayne there's quite a bit that I agree with with Wayne. I mean, I'd say probably 90% plus, I would say, yeah, right on the money. But there are a few things that I'm like, yeah, you're kind of bugging me. And uh, so uh, the bottom line, no matter what we use as a resource, foundationally, we always have to go to the scriptures uh, for our answers. And uh, that's where we're going to do our best to do that as we uh, tear apart uh, some of the doctrines that we look at. <coughs> Actually, I could use one of those schedules back because I don't know what we're doing now. Sure, I'll take one of those two, but I'll take the other one. Yes, there. So you'll see that uh, by way of our schedule uh, for the summer, uh, you can jump in at any time if you happen to miss one, so don't feel like, and there's no final exam, so don't worry about it. Uh, So that's good. But uh, invite your friends. Let's fill up this place. Uh, We will be taking a break, obviously, July 4th. Uh, for that holiday, and then we'll take a summer break on August 1st. I'll be on a family vacation. But uh, so basically four Wednesdays in June here, three in July, <laughs> and uh, three more in August. And that will we'll unpack as much as we can as time allows. We'll probably go to about 8 o'clock. Um, and if you guys decide that we want to do food, let me know, and we'll, we'll find a ways that if it's, it's helpful to have food here, we'll do that if it's... Uh, adds to the, and if you just want to bring snacks and bring food, feel free to do that. That's great. Okay, all right. Before we get started, any other qu- any questions? Anything on on your mind before we kick off and actually start diving in? Going once, going twice. Feel free as we're going along to interject, ask questions. I'll be glad to uh, answer anything I can as we go. Um, but uh, should be should be a lot of fun as we unpack some of these things. All right. Why do we believe what we believe? That's, that's really the essence of what we want to get at here. You know, it's one thing, yeah, we believe stuff. But well, why? Why do you believe it? And this really goes along the lines of a study of apologetics. 
in having, uh, you know, understanding the reasons and the rationale for what we believe uh, when questioned, when, when we're asked the question. So this is what we're going to tear into as we study. So what is systematic theology? That's one question we've got to tear apart. Uh, who, or why should Christians study it in particular? And how should we study it? These are some of the questions we're going to unpack uh, as we go along here. Uh, but that's, uh, th- these are some of the foundational questions we might want to consider in terms of what is it, why are we doing it, and how should we do it. Uh, so we'll tear into that as we go. In terms of an explanation, a scriptural basis for what we're talking about, um, first of all, we'll start with a definition. And this is a definition that actually, uh, I think in the front matter, uh, Wayne Grudem uh, remarks that he stole this definition <laughs> from somebody else. So he's got a definition that he, he actually robbed from John Frame. Uh, John Frame, who's uh, apparently now at uh, Westminster Seminary in California. Um, I actually, for one of the papers I wrote for my master's degree, I, I wrote a critique of John Frame. Uh, but anyway, uh, John Frame puts this forward as a definition for systematic theology. Systematic theology is any study that answers the question, what does the whole Bible teach us today about any given topic? Okay, some key phrases in there. Uh, whole Bible. So we're not looking for uh, what would be known as uh, uh, an eisegetical approach where I'm looking at one verse. I'm looking for exegetical uh, work where I'm looking at a bunch of verses to come up with our conclusion as we do theology and drawing conclusions. Now, there's a lot of things that we say generally about what we believe that are really kind of systematic the, you know, theological statements. We say things like, well, we believe that Jesus is divine. We believe that Jesus is God. Well, if you think about it, that's a summary statement that really comes from a whole bunch of Scripture uh, that helps us draw that conclusion. And so that's really a systematic theology statement. Quite frankly, even to say something like the Trinity, the word Trinity doesn't even show up in the Bible. But we see Scripture all over the place pointing to the plurality of our singular God, who is yet one and three, three in person and one in essence. So those are that's systematic theological considerations that we're applying to doctrines that we readily talk about, that we've made summary statements about based on the whole of Scripture. So. What does the whole Bible teach us today about any given topic? Well, we're obviously not going to be talking about um, Euclidean geometry. So <laughs> any, any topic related to the Bible it would be probably more specific there in terms of what you'd add. All right? So that's the definition that we're working with as we begin our discussions. Now, the first discussion we have to have is where does systematic theology come into play with regard to other disciplines of study. So if we tear this apart, first of all, as we approach the Bible, we start with hermeneutics. Who knows what hermeneutics is? Yeah. It's a science of interpreting the scriptures. Uh, So we first have to talk about how we come to the Greek and Hebrew texts to understand what God has said to begin with. 
and we have to have some principles of interpretation. And so, by the way, as we approach Scripture, we, we actually interpret different portions of Scripture different ways. Well, what do I mean by that? Well, just like with the newspaper, you don't wear the same set of glasses as you look through the newspaper. You know, you don't read the opinion page as the news. <laughs> you, don't, you don't read, uh, hopefully you don't read the, the obituaries as the comics, right? Uh, you, you, you put different glasses on. Okay, this is, this is the news, right? We think, it's, we think it's right. We hope it's accurate. Um, of course, people talk about fake news. Uh, or I put on, you know, okay, this is the advertisement section. This is, I'm looking for a job. And I put different glasses on, different lenses to see the genre of literature that I find in a newspaper, okay? Similarly with the Bible, as I come to Scripture, I put different glasses on to under- understand different parts of Scripture her- hermeneutically. Uh, why? Because there's different genres of literature here. I've got historical narrative. Um, I've got apocalyptic literature. It's revelational. It's prophecy, if you will. Uh, I have poetry. I've got letters, letters to churches, wherein I only really have only one half of a dialogue. We don't, you know, here we have these letters from Paul to a church, but we don't know what the church wrote to Paul. It's like, you know, listening to one end of a telephone conversation. You don't have all the data to know what uh, everything's being discussed here. Uh, the Synoptic Gospels, uh, it's a different kind of literature. Uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Uh, the Gospel of John, it really is different than Matthew, Mark, and Lot, uh, Luke. It, it, John is really more like a sermon than it is an overview of Jesus' life, trying to convince us to believe. Uh, the book of Revelation as apocalyptic literature, it, it's, it's revelational, it's prophecy. Uh, you know, and I heard a sound like a, a voice of the sound of thunder. Well, was it actually thunder? Was it actually a voice? No, it was like that. Okay, was it exactly that? No, it's all kinds of imagery and illustrations, metaphor, and the like. So we have to understand that every time we come to Scripture, we have to make sure we're looking at the kind of, you know, we understand the genre we're looking at to begin unpacking it. And that's really one of the fundamental basics of hermeneutics. Secondly, once we start diving into Scriptures and tearing it apart by way of uh, interpretation, we begin biblical studies. Uh, this would be along the lines of, you know, what does John have to say about something? Uh, what do we see, uh, what is Joshua writing about in the Old Testament? And so we start looking at various books and unpacking various themes and scriptures as we look at biblical studies. And from biblical studies, we have a separate discussion off to the side here, which would be historical theology. You know, in terms of archaeological finds, in terms of what we find in the history books surrounding these time frames, you know, what do we find out there that corresponds to how we interpret things or how we understand the the biblical uh, venue by which uh, everything we have here comes from? Uh, so, so if I'm going to study, you know, like a passage on Jericho, I could actually go to Jericho and join one of the digs there and kind of tear that apart and look at the, what's the history behind Jericho that we know we can find. Uh, there's all kinds of different studies that we could look at in terms of what's been held historically by way of our theology. Then you have biblical theology. And again, I mentioned uh, here we have John Owen, which is a biblical theology. Here we'd say, 
Well, I could look, you know, from a biblical study, I could look at, you know, the book of Philemon, or I could look at Romans. But with biblical theology, what we want to say, what does Paul have to say about any topic? Or what's Pauline theology look like? Or what does the Pentateuch, what does Mosaic theology look like in terms of what Moses wrote? Uh, Are there things that are different that would... Are there any themes that are similar to Paul in terms of Moses and Paul? Are they the same? Are they different? And so we now look at biblical theology, uh, basically really making sure we're staying close to various uh, major authors and major themes, biblically speaking. And then on top of that, you have systematic theology, which is the next level. It's really the, the, uh, the top layer of this cake that we're building. This is where, as we just said a moment ago by way of our definition, where we can take a particular topic, uh, say love. What does all of Scripture say about love? Or what does all of Scripture say about forgiveness? Uh, what does all of Scripture say about any particular topic? And we can tear that apart systematically and uh, draw some conclusions. Now, along with this, we have church history uh, because that's also influenced us uh, in terms of how we see things by way of uh, what churches have determined to be true or what we hold, like the, the canon of Scripture. You know, who said that, you know, the 27 books of the New Testament are part of the canon? And, and uh, how do we accept that? And why are some books like the Gospel of Thomas or the Gospel of Judas, uh, how, why are those excluded? Well, based on church history and what the church has always held to, uh, the church dogma that we've held historically, that helps shape how we see some of these things. And so that's another area of study. Out of the top of our cake, we start moving into some real practical areas of our theological studies. First of all, we have the discipline of apologetics. In other words, based on how we interpret scriptures and our biblical studies, biblical theology, and our systematic theology, how can I now defend the faith? How can, I, how can I explain it to somebody else in a way that they can receive it? How can I fight for it? Um, secondly, we have practical theology. How should we uh, organize ourselves by way of a church? Uh, how, do, how should we talk about baptizing people? Um, how should we worship? This becomes very practical in nature. And lastly, the last balloon here is the issue of ethics, uh, or as Francis Schaeffer asked the question, how should we then live? In light of all that we know with what we've studied uh, in our studies, how, how do we determine what we're going to do here in our lives? Okay, so that's really the overview of what you'd find at any good seminary. You'd find all, all these different disciplines that a pastor would be preparing for. Um, hermeneutics, this would get into your Greek and Hebrew studies, for example. Uh, biblical studies, you might take a class on, you know, the book of Ephesians. Uh, for biblical stu- theology, uh, you might uh, take a look at major theological themes that you find Old Testamentally or uh, in the Gospels, for example. And then, of course, systematic theology, uh, like we're basing our study on with Wayne Grudem and his systematic now, just so you know, for my uh, master's degree, my, my cognate field of study uh, where I spent a bulk of my time uh, was uh, on theological uh, studies involving systematic theology. Um, it's, uh, it's great fun for me uh, to have fun with. 
Um, so anyway, the, I, I love this stuff. It's fun to tear it apart. All right? Any questions on that? Any other disciplines you were thinking of that should have been up there that are missing or one you'd like to add? You are a quiet bunch. That's okay. That means you're satisfied. I hope that's true. All right, moving on then. In terms of application to life, systematic theology focuses on summarizing each doctrine as it should be understood by present-day Christians. Uh, Again, we, we have to understand, going back to our historical theology, uh, by way of church dogma, church doctrine, um, our biblical studies and so on. Uh, we can talk about the historicity of a particular doctrine, but uh, in particular, we're interested in what do we believe right this moment based on what all of Scripture says about a particular topic. That's what we're trying to unpack as we move along here. Now, we can also have a discussion about systematic theology versus disorganized theology, <laughs> okay? And there's some people who want to argue. Matter of fact, in, uh, you'll notice there is no D on your, uh, in your notes. There is a discussion that Wayne Grudem has in his book on, on section D that I have omitted. That is a discussion uh, based on, uh, you know, people who complain or crab about studying systematic theology, and that somehow we're creating something over and above the Bible. And that's not the goal. The goal isn't to try to create uh, something that we would refer to instead of the Bible. Um, Because ultimately, any systematic theological statement that we make has to be rooted in Scripture. Um, But I will say this as a caution. Um, We need to make sure that as we come to Scripture, we need to be honest it's very easy for us to take our systematic theology, our huge sweeping statements, and start with that and then try to jam what we think we already know about things into the text. And then all of a sudden, we've got a systematic that's bringing about a a governing factor in our interpretation that's potentially dangerous. And so we need to be honest with the text And let the text speak for itself whenever we're going to teach on a particular text. Uh, If we're going to talk about systematic theology, then let's look at all the scriptures, you know, that talks about a particular issue. Okay, fine. But if you're going to start doing like what I do on a Sunday, and we're looking at a text, you know, we got to find out what is that text saying right here, right now. Uh, We would argue that there's one interpretation for the text, uh, getting back to all the historical roots we can to unpack that. In terms of application, there's all kinds of application, uh, you know, hundreds, thousands of application that, that we can apply to any particular text in terms of principles we might put forward, which is uh, basically, uh, as you notice on a Sunday, where uh, in terms of how I develop messages, uh, we're looking at some of the nuggets and some of the things we can draw from the text that uh, some sweeping uh, biblical principles that we can draw from. Uh, from the text that we're looking at by way of the one interpretation that we're looking at. Uh, and so this, this, this has to govern us. We have to let the text be the text. And where we end up in trouble is when we start reading into it. So let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. Um, 
you'll, if you take your Bible just for fun and turn to John chapter 3 for just an example. And uh, I'm going to ask you a trick question in a second. In John chapter 3, we have this wonderful dialogue between Jesus and a ruler of Israel, one of the, one of the Pharisees, uh, Nicodemus, who comes to him at night. And we see Nicodemus starts the conversation out saying, Rabbi, in verse 2, we know that you are a teacher. This is John 3, verse 2. You're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with them. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Well, Nicodemus said to him, Well, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And, you know, we stop right there, and um, we start asking some questions, especially when we look at verse 5. Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless, you are, unless one is born of water uh, and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So everybody look up here. Don't read any more for a second. So we read that, and we say, we, okay, unless you're born of water, you're born of the Spirit, you can't see the kingdom of God. And so you ask most groups of people, what is Jesus talking about? What do you think he's talking about? Don't read the next verse, but just tell me, what do you think he's talking about, being born of water, being born of the Spirit? What's he talking about? What's the conclusion that many people will jump to? There it is. I'd like to inform you that there is nothing about baptism in this text whatsoever. <laughs> but that's what we jump to because that's, that's, a, that's a theological construct that we have systematically. When we hear about water, we, we baptize. And that's, that's, that's normal. It's natural for us to do that. But I am incredibly convinced that this is exactly not about baptism. D could it have an application of baptism? Sure. But is it actually not in the text? How do I know that? How do I know that with any you know, determination or significance or confidence? Read the next verse. What's he say? That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. What's Nicodemus' theological problem? or this, this, you know, What's his point? What's his problem with this discussion to begin with? Jesus says you need to be born again. What does Nicodemus say? Well, how, how can I climb up there and come out again? Right? <laughs> I'm sorry, that's not going to happen. Are you crazy? You're out of your mind. Oh, hey, you've got to be born of water and of the Spirit, Nick. Don't you know this? You're a teacher of all Israel. You don't know this stuff? And he's going to say that in a second by way of a critique. And to clarify... If Nick's problem is a problem between the physical and the spiritual, then what needs to happen is Jesus is making the comparison. This is a discussion about spiritual birth versus physical birth, Nick. By the way, what happens when you're born? What happens with mom? The water breaks, right? You're born of water. Oh, okay. Right? But I'm not talking to you about that, Nick. I'm talking about spiritual birth, pal. By the way, thematically, what's even fun, what even pushes us further is you go and read chapter 4, and we have Jesus and the woman at the well. What's the discussion about? It's about living water, 
But she thinks, she's like, like, well, where is this water you're talking about? No, I'm talking about spiritual things. Hello? This goes all the way to chapter 5 and 6. This same theme. What theme? The contrast between the spiritual and the physical. Here, first of all, birth, physical birth versus spiritual birth. Real water versus spiritual water, which I guess I'd argue that's more real. <laughs> and then thirdly, what's Jesus' push? Hey, unless you, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, <laughs> he pushes it. It's actually a church reduction program. By the end of six, you'll find out he's actually weeding everybody out. Why? Because they're all showing up. Well, hey, you, you fed us the other day. That was great in chapter five. Could you do that again? They're there for the wrong reason. So a little church reduction program. Okay, eat my flesh, drink my blood. And they're like, you know, even his disciples are like, dude, can you tone it down? This is hard for us to hear, you know. And not only that, people are leaving. They're like, okay, got to go. You know, this guy's crazy. He sounds like it's cannibalism. And what does Jesus do is he includes it. He goes, look, I'm talking to you about spiritual things. Matter of fact, he says this, the flesh profits what? Nothing. That's what he says. He actually turns to the guys, you guys don't want to leave too, do you? Peter goes, we have nowhere else to go. Oh, okay. I guess we'll stay. Notice how thematically now we've drawn some huge conclusions doing some biblical theology here, understanding very clearly that even more so how much chapter 3 is just not about baptism at all. It's the contrast between spiritual issues versus physical issues that each person or people group is dealing with. And that unpacks in, in, in a Johannian uh, uh, study that we might do uh, in terms of what he's written here for us. Okay? Now, that's, that, that's, that was free. There's no charge for that to, uh, to unpack what we're trying to get at here, that we have to be careful not to take our systematic theology and start jamming into the text just because it's got the word. It's got a word that jumps out at us. So I've, I've had people do this. They'll read a word, and Jesus says, you know, you know, in the world, you'll have tribulation. And people go, well, that's the great tribulation, isn't it? I'm like, does it say that? No. Okay, let's just maybe, maybe he's just saying in the world, there's going to be hardship. There's going to be difficulties. Yeah, I, I get that. I, I can relate to that. But it's very easy for us to start drawing huge conclusions about things that aren't there. So that's my big caution on systematic theology, that we always have to go back to the text to make sure that we're interpreting it right to be able to draw our conclusions that we might systematize in terms of a broad overview. Is that fair? Does that make sense? Okay, and how we're going to approach things, how we should? All right. So we're going to hold to a systematic theology as opposed to disorganized theology, if you don't mind. Why? Because as we apply these things to systematic theology, this will help us to treat biblical topics in a carefully organized way, first of all. Secondly, it'll help us to treat topics in a much more detailed way as we tear apart different nuances. So we could talk about the Trinity, but I could talk specifically about the Holy Spirit. I could actually talk specifically about the work of the Holy Spirit. I could talk specifically about the doctrine of the anointing of the Holy Spirit. I mean, that's how specific I could get and look up every verse on that. Thirdly, it helps us to formulate biblical teaching with much more biblical accuracy. Hi, Paul. Welcome. 
Uh, and again, I don't know about you, but this is what I'm after. I, I'm longing to be able to rightly divide God's word in such a way that we've got access to truth and accuracy, what we're talking about. So that apologetically, when we're asked the question, I can give a reasonable response to what God hath said. That makes sense, that's coherent, that's backed up with scripture, and not just one scripture, but perhaps dozens. You'll notice on a Sunday from time to time, I'll say a particular truth, and then I'll, I'll throw three other passages at you going, it says it there, it says it there, it says it there. What am I trying to say? Am I just you know, trying to bore you to death by repeating the same thing? No, I want you to understand that this isn't just one fly-by-night idea. This is, through, this is everywhere. And there's some things like that that show up all over the place that we just keep running into. You know what, like, the, the biggest thing that show, shows up like everywhere that all God has ever wanted, this is all he's ever wanted, is that he would be God and we would be his people. You can look up that phrase, and I will be their God and they will be my people. You look that up, that shows up in Genesis all the way to Revelation. I just want to be God and you can be my people. Any questions? <laughs> That's all I've ever wanted. It's not complicated. And so I could pull out verse after verse after verse on that. You see, th this is something that is centered to the heart of God in terms of what he's wanting to accomplish. So this will hold, help us to formulate biblical teaching with much more biblical accuracy. And uh, we, we must find and treat fairly all the relevant Bible passages for each particular topic. We can't, uh, it's very, by the way, this is called proof texting. It's very easy to take a text and <laughs> try to jam it in to support what your view is. You've got to be careful with that. Uh, there's unfortunately a lot of Christian authors who do this. Um, and it's unfortunate. Uh, they say, what's the line? A, uh, yeah, a text, a text without a context is a pretext for a proof text. I think that's it. A text without a context is a pretext for a proof text. I think that's what it is. Anyway, the idea is it's very easy for us to take something and try to win an argument with it because it works for us, when in reality it might not be anything that has to do with what we're even talking about. So we need to be fair with how we look at the scriptures and as we unpack it as best we can. All right? So, again, I, I'm an organized guy. I'm a math major. I like things that make sense, line up, things, you know, let's do some calculations here, draw some conclusions with the data that we have. And I want to make sure we have good data, good studies, so we can have good conclusions. My, you know, my goal on a Sunday is to put forward God's word in such a way, almost like a, a mathematical uh, equation. I, I, in, in deductive reasoning, where A implies B and B implies C, then therefore A implies C, uh, the goal is to take God's word and go, look, God says this, God says this, he says this, therefore, bam, this is what it says, and we've got to deal with it. Okay, that's, that's kind of in terms of building the statements that uh, we're trying to put forward. We, we want to make sure we're saying, communicating as best we can what God is trying to get across to us through what he has said. All right, fun stuff. All right, uh, so what are doctrines? Well, a doctrine is what the whole Bible teaches us today about some particular topic. And throughout our course over the next uh, several weeks, 
Uh, we're taking a look at the doctrine of the Word of God, the doctrine of God proper. We can say the doctrine of Scripture, if you will, and the doctrine of God. We'll begin the doctrine of Scripture actually next week, next week at the doctrine of the Word of God. Uh, we'll tear into that next week, so uh, bring your Bible. We'll have fun with that. And the doctrine of God or theology, the doctrine of man, sometimes known as anthropology, in terms of this study. Matter of fact, uh, in this particular uh, 1870s version, uh, the three divisions of theology in this text, actually in this, this is the, the newer version, uh, the first volume is theology, volume two is anthropology, so we have God, man, and then soteriology, salvation. That's the three huge divisions that Hodge used, uh, which, I mean, that really is the deal. We got God, we got man, creator, creation, we need salvation. So that's how we broke it down. So the doctrine of man or anthropology, the doctrine of Christ uh, and the Holy Spirit. Um, this is sometimes referred to as a Christology here, uh, pneumatology, uh, based on the root word for spirit in the Greek, pneumas. Um, fifthly, we have the doctrine of the application of redemption, uh, ideas of uh, salvation, soteriology, sometimes referred to. The doctrine of the church, ecclesiology, ecclesia from the Greek. Uh, the doctrine of the future, uh, this would be eschatology. Um, doctrine of the end times. Okay, so this is the major divisions that we're uh, tearing uh, our course apart with. And as I said, over the summer, we're only going to be looking at the first two. This is semester number one uh, of three. Okay? We'll do as much as we can get in. All right, what else do we have? Some initial assumptions. Are you ready? Two things we're going to hold as true, and uh, we're going to start with, if you will. I don't know one. We're going to go with this idea that the Bible is true. We'll talk more about that when we unpack <laughs> the doctrine of Scripture. Um, but uh, just so you know, I believe it's true. Uh, I believe it's 100% true. There's a wonderful passage in the Psalms, the sum of thy word is truth. I love that idea. The sum of thy word is truth. I want you think about that idea for a second. The sum of thy word is truth. If you take a true-false test in a class, how much of the statement has to be false for you to mark it false? Any part, any portion of it. If any portion of it is false, then i got to say that's false. But we're told by the psalmist that the sum of thy word is truth. In other words, when you add it all up, what do you get? Truth. Which means there can't be what? Anything not true in it, right? Well, that's pretty huge. That's a huge statement. Okay? So we're going to go with this crazy notion that what God has said is, in fact, true. Well, should I back up a little bit more? Should we talk about, do we need to talk for just a moment that there is such a thing as truth? Let's talk about that philosophically, shall we? Th there is such a thing as truth? No, there is, really. And, and we know that there is. Uh, there are, you know, people will say, well, there's no absolute truth. The problem with that statement, of course, is that that happens to be an absolute truth statement. So then that invalidates itself. So it's 
basically an absurdity. You can't really say that with any meaning. I mean, you can say it. It's like saying all words are meaningless. I just use words to say that. Oops. That's a problem. Right? So we have to make sure we're saying things that are reasonable. I can't say with any reasonability that there is no such thing as absolute truth, because that's an absolute true statement. What I can say without any impunity is there is such a thing as absolute truth, uh, and nobody can argue with me about that. We know that there are actually true things, true statements on the planet. Two and two is four. If in my math class you say it's five, I'm going to mark you wrong. Sorry. Maybe in your world, on your planet, you think it's five. That's fine. But here in this world, in this universe, it turns out two and two is four. If you want to have a two and two is five party, that's your business. Go ahead. But I'm going to mark it wrong. <laughs> okay? Sorry. Bummer for you. Okay? There are some things that we can know with certainty. I wish I had time to explode this with you. Uh, there's a wonderful illustration uh, we could use uh, between the difference... Uh, between opinion and knowledge, uh, there are things that we can actually know and we can know that they're actually true. R.C. Sproul puts it this way, truth is, is that which corresponds to reality. That which is real is that which is true. I mean, that's a brilliant idea. It's a brilliant statement. Okay? If it's not real, it's probably not true. Skippy the unicorn is probably not true. Why? Because it's not real. <laughs> right? Okay. Now, in your world, you might have Skippy, and he might be your unicorn, so be it, if he's a stuffed one. So we're going to go with the idea that the Bible is true. There is such a thing as truth, and we can... Uh, so actually, the better question is, if I can't say the statement that there, are, there is no absolute truth, if I can't say that with any meaning, and I can say there is such a thing as absolute truth without any impunity, the better question really is, in light of the fact that truth exists, what is it? I mean, that's the better question. What is truth? And as a matter of fact, that's what Pilate asked Jesus, right? Well, what is truth? Okay? You're looking at it. And by the way, Jesus says the truth will set you free. All right, so the Bible is true. And God exists. We're going we're gonna to go with that. And by the way, we're not going to presuppose that, as some theologians would like to say. I'd like to submit to you, you already know that God is. You don't presuppose that. And by the way, presuppositionalism presupposes presuppositionalism. So that's the whole problem with that. Uh, so, but we're going to argue that God exists. And the reason you know that is because, as Paul writes in Romans 1, that he's made himself known to everyone by that which he has revealed about himself. Oh, that. In other words, there's an implicit epistemology, an implicit knowledge of the existence of God that we have. It's not salvific. In other words, there has to be enough knowledge about God. Are you ready? There has to be enough knowledge about God that all of us have to damn us. Oh, oh dear. Whoa. In other words, it can't be that someone shows up in, you know, before the Father one day and goes, oh, I had no idea. He goes, oh, yeah, you did. So we all have an implicit knowledge to such a degree, as Paul says, that we're all without excuse about it. And you go, whoa. Romans 1, look at that. So we're going to hold these, we're going to go with these two beginning assumptions, that God's word is true, the Son of God's word is true, 
and God is um, the Almighty. Quite frankly, there's really, I mean, there are people who proclaim that they're atheists, but God would clearly disagree with them <laughs> about that. All right? Okay. Thirdly, why should Christians study theology? Well, what say you before we look into some answers that Wayne put forward? Why do you think we should study this stuff at all? Why should it matter? Yeah. Okay, good. What else? Why else should we study this stuff? Yeah. Yeah. It gives us our own foundation for what we believe, doesn't it? Right? Because sometimes we've held things and we're not really sure why we've held them. Well, that's what I've always heard, but I really don't know where that is in Scripture or why the church holds that position. Uh, and once we sort some of those things out, you know, the faith, our faith really becomes more of our own, right? Remember that one time, uh, well, with the woman at the well, right? Remember the woman, she, by the way, you never find out if anybody ever gets any water on that deal, right? <laughs> she leaves her, her uh, whatever, her pot or whatever, and she takes off and goes into the city, and now all the people are coming from the city, right? And there's an interesting thing that they say that initially that, you know, because of the woman's testimony, they, they believed. But by the end of that passage, they said, you know, it's not because of what this woman said. But now we know that you're the son of God. They've had actual experience. They're not hearing it from hearsay, from what somebody else had to say. They've heard from the source. And that's what we want to do. We want to get back to the source in terms of our grounding theologically to make sure we understand why we believe what we believe, right? As opposed to, well, I've just always believed that, and I'm not really sure why or where it is, okay? So here's some ideas. Uh, a major part of discipleship is teaching, Matthew 28. Let's take a look at that. Matthew 28. Some of you already know where I'm going with this. As Jesus uh, is concluding his ministry, on earth, in a fleshly way. In verse 18, he says, and, uh, it says, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Teaching. There it is. We need to be talking about these things in an educational format. There should, there should be a pedagogy on this <laughs> in terms of our teaching. All right? Uh, so this is huge, and this is all part of it. We need to learn. I'd like to remind you that when Jesus was born, apparently he wasn't downloaded with all knowledge. We like to think that he was. We like to think that when Jesus was born, he was able to do Euclidean geometry. But, <laughs> but it says that he grew in knowledge. That's what Scripture says. Oh. And if Jesus grew in knowledge, and he's found with the, the rabbis at the temple, you know, his parents lost him at one time. If he's learned, maybe we need to go learn from this, right? Maybe we should study it. So a major part of discipleship, in terms of making disciples and make disciples, as Jesus says, is teaching. Secondly, benefits to our own lives. It, as uh, 
Mike already said, this encourages us. It brings us hope about what we believe and the reasons why we believe. All of us wrestle with doubts from time to time, right? We do. Every once in a while, we'll just go, man, I wonder, is this really right? Is this really true? I don't know if you've ever run into that. I'm going to guess you probably wrestle from time to time. Just, just wondering. I wonder. For me, I always end up going back to the Scripture, going, but how could all this be wrong? Because the more I look at it, the more correspondence I see. That's a, there's a phrase we could throw out for a moment. You know, if it's God, the God of the universe who wrote this and gave this to us, you know, men moved by the Spirit spoke from God. If that's what this is, then it should be as I encounter God's Word and then I look at the world, I should see correspondence. I should see that there's a relationship between what God has created and what He has said about what He's created. And I don't know about you, but the more I study God's word, the more correspondence I find, which strengthens my faith about what God hath said. You'd think that, well, maybe I I study it more and I find more cracks in it or something. No, the more I study, the more correspondence I found. Name the discipline, whether it's uh, relationships, whether it's creation, all over the place. Finding peace. Turns out when you apply these principles that God has put forth in his word, turns out you can find peace. Wow, that's correspondence. It's reality. Why? Because it's true. Oh, yeah, okay, back to that. Good old R.C. Sproul. So there are benefits to our own personal lives spiritually and otherwise. Uh, You could argue for our families. Uh, Along with this, it helps us overcome wrong ideas. Sometimes, I'm sorry, I've run into dear people I got to be careful sometimes. Uh, when I was a young man, I just I liked to argue, and I like you know I'm going to show you how wrong we are. Um, and um, <laughs> when you become a church planner, you just can't be that guy because you, nobody will come. <laughs> They'll go, that guy's argumentative. I'm leaving. Uh, and so sometimes you you've got to let people be wrong for a while until God opens an opportunity for them to be teachable. On the one hand, they have to be teachable, ready to hear it. And then secondly, maybe there's a better time where I could show them when they're asking for it what's really meant. I can't tell how many times that has happened where I chose to wait and let somebody be wrong for a while. And then God opened a door for me to say, well, here's what Scripture says. And God brings that about instead of my trying to engineer it or force it, right? Um, and so, and we need help with this because sometimes we hold some bad theology. Maybe, you know, we had somebody that we, were, we learned from, from some other teacher, from some other church, some radio, some TV guy, or gal, whatever. We, we listen to a lot of stuff. We listen to Oprah. I mean, there's all kinds of stuff we inadvertently take and say, well, that's from the Bible. I mean, you know, God helps those who help themselves. Well, that's not in the Bible, you know, but people are running with that as if that's some sound theology. Okay? And we need to make sure that we understand that, well, maybe maybe I've got this wrong myself. Maybe I need to go back and take a relook at this and make sure I've done my research. 
I remember many times, uh, especially in college, even at a Christian campus, I was getting beat up. I came from a pretty conservative, evangelical, awesome church. Dr. Bruce Dunn, who was a contemporary of Carl F. H. Henry and, and uh, Billy Graham down in Peoria, Illinois. You know, he had a 2,000-plus member church back in, it was back in the 70s, a megachurch before it was cool to be a megachurch. Uh, worldwide radio ministry, television studio. I mean, the whole nine yards, man. This was a cool ministry, and I had the privilege of growing up in it. Listen to this guy preach it, man. And, you know, from time to time, uh, as, as you, you listen to that, you, you have to come to a place where is the theology you've gotten from this, is this really yours, or is it, somebody, is it his? You know, just like the woman at the well, you know, I heard from you, and now I take it for myself. But I got to college, I started getting beat up. I got this wonderful foundation, scripturally, biblically. The guy was, a, Dr. Bruce Dunn was a great teacher, and I went to Taylor, and I had a great foundation. I started getting beat up with doctrinal issues. Bam, bam, eternal salvation, speaking in tongues. <laughs> I'm getting hammered, and I'm like, wait a minute. I don't, I don't have my basis for why, why I believe this stuff. Even though I had a great teacher, a great pastor, I grew up in a great church, great youth group. And I saw other, other friends of mine who basically their whole foundation was undermined at a Christian college. Something that's scary about Taylor, sorry. <laughs> but it can happen at Moody. I mean, really, it, it, it can happen anywhere. There's a party crowd, by the way, at every college, including Moody. Um, so, the only way to refute that for me in several cases is I had to go take God's word, and I looked up every verse. I did my own, you know, I did my own systematic theological study on various topics, so I could go, okay, well, wait a minute, you guys are wrong. This is what Scripture says. You know, back off. I'm done listening to you people. Okay, and so this is huge. <laughs> Sometimes we need to be open that well, maybe I am wrong about this. And let's go look it up. Let's go see what does God say about it. And by the way, sometimes he doesn't say anything about it. <laughs> Are you okay with that? <laughs> yeah. Well, the, the thing that uh, I kept running into over and over again was the issue of speaking in tongues. And um, I, just, I just kept getting beat over the head with people here, I was on tour with a singing group out of Taylor University, and we had, you know, we did concerts at all kinds of churches. And sure enough, I, I would have uh, people come up to me after the concert and they go, "So, so when did you speak in tongues?" And I go, "Well, I never have." And they go, "Are you sure you're saved?" Well, yeah, I'm pretty sure, but but don't don't you want to have all that God has for you? Yeah. Well, then you you need to speak. Could, I could make this story about 20 minutes long if I wanted to. Um, and I kept running into that over and over again, Ray. Matter of fact, my senior year, I'm taking a summer class, my last class at Taylor uh, in uh, statistics to complete my major so I can get married to Mrs. Belcherville. And, uh, and so... You know, they kind of reorganize the dormitories, and you end up with one dorm, and so all of a sudden you're around other people you haven't seen on or know on campus. 
to this one guy named Jim, I won't tell you his name, who was the student body class president. One night, this guy's launching into me. You, oh, Jim has spoken in tongues? Are you sure you're safe? And I, in my heart, I was like, okay, that's it. I've had it. So I had a, I used to work at a Sondervan family bookstore, so I grabbed my concordance, and I looked up every verse on glossa, every verse on tongues in the New Testament. I wrote them, I actually wrote all of them out in a notebook, every verse on tongues. And they're wrong. <laughs> they're just wrong. Two major reasons for tongues. Number one, it's a proof of the sign of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Number two, it's for the proclamation of the gospel. Even Paul, by the way, one of the verses that they'll quote, I got a document of this from, a, uh, from an Assembly of God church up in my office, um, and they'll use this quote. Uh, Paul says, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than you all. They'll use that as support, but they don't read the next verse. In other words, perfect example of ripping a verse out of its context. Why? What's the next verse? But I'd rather speak five words that make sense than what? thousands that don't make any. Oh. What's he trying to say? The issue is by way of, we need to be able to communicate truth. That's the essence of what this is about. And, uh, and so at, at which point, now, you know, I, I've got, I now have, I've done systematic theological studies on it. And by the way, tongue, you can easily tra translate as language. You know, we make it tongue of some kind of Greek or tongue. No, it's language. Do I believe there's a gift of tongues to this day? I would put it this way. I think there are people who have the gift of languages to this day. I've got a daughter, <coughs> actually two daughters, who are crazy gifted language-wise. My oldest daughter has already learned French, and she's now learning um, Turkish. And my middle daughter, or my youngest daughter, actually, <laughs> Abby's picking up Chinese for crying out loud right now. Um, and uh, Leanna, she picked up Hungarian while we were in Hungary. And she's, she, can, she can hold a conversation in Spanish. And I'm like, I can't do that. I don't have that gift. <laughs> I don't have that. I study you know, Greek and Hebrew thoroughly, but that doesn't mean I know it. I took five semesters of Hebrew. That doesn't, not compared to what my girls can do. So I don't have that gift. Got another friend of mine who, man, she she's able to speak. Um, she incredible. She picked up Latin. She picked up um, well, along with Latin, she picked up uh, Spanish. She picked up Romanian, and uh, you know all those all those uh, uh, Latin-based languages. She was able to morph those and figure it out. And it's like wow, and, and Italian and all that. Like, okay, back to this. By the way, there's more to that story. <laughs> um, helps us overcome wrong ideas. Helps us to be able to make better decisions in our lives. Helps us to grow in our faith. Uh, by the way, over and over again, Scripture talks about this idea of growing. First uh, Timothy 6.3, Titus 1.1. Um, let's just take a quick look at that. I want you to see it. First uh, Timothy 6 here.
in First uh, Timothy 6.3, if anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness. Uh, let's back up. Verse 2, those who, who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Teach and urge these things. And if anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy, for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into this world and cannot take anything out of it either. Um, you know, just some simple, profound truth about you know, what kind of person we should be in our relationship to putting forth truth. Titus 1.1, a few pages over. Um, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, uh, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began at the proper time manifest in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God, our Savior. So, you know, the, the only way we can have access to these promises is through this this. Uh, issue of knowledge, this issue of having access to truth, uh, which comes by way of preaching and the like. In contrast now to 1 Timothy 1.10, where Paul says this, we're backing up. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. There it is, contrary to sound do doctrine. In accordance with the gospel, the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. So, again, the, the goal here with our study of systematic theology is to make sure that we're dealing with sound doctrine so we can know how best to live in uh, you know, our Christian lives before God and before each other and before the world, ultimately. So this helps us to grow in our faith, in our study. Now, in terms of the difference between the major and minor doctrines, a major doctrine simply is one that has a significant impact on our thinking about other doctrines or that has a significant impact on how we live the Christian life. Of course, a minor doctrine is one that has very little impact on how we think about other doctrines and a very little impact on how we live the Christian life. So who can give me some examples of major doctrine? What would be a major doctrine that we'd have to agree on? The death and resurrection of Christ. Now let's be specific. Are you holding to a bodily resurrection or a spiritual resurrection of Christ? Bodily, good answer. <laughs> so uh, again, that's that. Make, that pushes it a little bit more in terms of that theological doctrine, in terms of what are we saying about the resurrection and the specific words surrounding it. Um, okay? Uh, so that would be a major issue, the deity of Christ, uh, the Trinity, you know, things like that. What would be a minor doctrine, do you think? Yeah. Okay, that might be more of a minor doctrine. What else? 
cela, c'est différent. No one has any minor doctrines. I'm sorry? Frequency of communion. Yeah. There are some churches who argue that you should have it every Sunday. Because if you're Catholic, you should have it, every Mass should happen every day. Right? once a month. I know some churches who, you know, maybe once a year. Some churches, never. Yeah. 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 There's a whole host of <laughs> things we could dive into. Right? Good. So now, lastly here, how should Christians study systematic theology? And I love some of the truth put forward here by Wayne. I think as we approach our studies, we need to approach from the standpoint of prayer. We need to be asking God to be our teacher here as we encounter his word. Again, we're not longing so much to, to have access to man's constructs here. We're, we're longing to get access to what God is saying. So the psalmist writes, Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. That's really a cry out to God, God, open my eyes. be a good prayer to pray every time you open your Bible and start reading it. 1 Corinthians 2.14, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Again, apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, uh, when we encounter God's Word, you know, there's a lack of understanding. Um, let me just ask this question. For how many of you, before you came to Christ, you read the Bible and it really didn't make much sense to you, but then when you came to Christ and you read it, it made sense? Is anybody that true for? Yeah. That's a common experience. Why? Because of this very verse right here. Because prior to the work of the Holy Spirit in you, there was no way for you to uh, rightly understand what God has said. Now, here's what's so cool. Then, and by the way, this, this, this tells you, let me encourage you that your heart gives you hope how much God loves you. Because if you're, if, you're, if you're understanding what I'm talking about in terms of the spiritual understanding here, you are so very blessed. What did Jesus say? It was many wise men, prophets, long to know these things. But it's been given to you. God's opened your eyes to see. He must really love you to do that. That's so cool. Again, we're not able to understand it because we're spiritually discerned. So we must have access. And so we need to cry out, Lord, show me. Show me your truth. Show me what I need here today. Or as you approach a Sunday morning, the preaching of the word. Lord, I want to hear from you today. I mean, I'm, I'm praying that myself up there. I, I, don't, I don't want you guys to hear from me. I want, I want you to hear what God is saying. I'm going to put forward some general principles as best I can in terms of what the, the, the passage seems to be pushing us towards. But ultimately, I want you to hear what God is saying to you through his word. By the way, you know, You know, it's very nice when people after a service come up and say, you know, you know, thank you for your message. It's like, but one of my favorite things that happens is somebody says, you know, when you said this about that thing, that really touched my heart. And I'm thinking in my mind, I never said that. 
<laughs> that what, what does that mean? God is doing some business in a cool way that's beyond me, and that just thrills my soul. I'm like, thank you, Lord. I'd rather you walk out thinking God was talking to you than, you know, some cute nugget I gave you, uh, some funny story or whatever. Okay? Again, with humility. We should come to our studies here with humility. I was talking to Josh earlier tonight that, you know, there's, there's no such thing as a proud theologian. Why? Because as we come to God's word, there's really no room for discovery. Because everything you're getting is from him, <laughs> right? He's the one giving it. He's the one who grants access to any truth. So I can't say, well, look how sharp I am. I figured it out. No. Remember that one time? Uh, the disciples are around Jesus, and Jesus says, so what are people saying about me, right? And they go, oh, some say, you know, that uh, you're John the Baptist. Some say you're Elijah, you know. Yeah, well, what do you guys say about me? Peter pipes up. Why, you're the son of the living God. No, notice what Jesus doesn't say. Jesus doesn't say, high five, Peter, you're brilliant, you're awesome, you figured it out, knuckles. You know, he doesn't say that. He says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. You go, whoa, the only reason Peter's got a clue about anything is because our Heavenly Father had opened his eyes to see it by who Jesus was. By the way, I would submit to you that I think the other 11 guys are so lost. They don't get it. Why do I say that? Because it's only until the, <laughs> the end of the book of John, towards the very end of the book of John, when all of a sudden uh, Jesus says, you know, I've come from the Father, I'm going back to the Father, and all of a sudden the disciples go, oh, so you, you came from the Father. And Jesus kind of marvels and goes, well, now you believe? And it's like, okay, we can go to the cross now. I've accomplished what I need to accomplish. Let's go. And if Jesus doesn't, you know, convince these 11 guys who he is, then he can't go to the cross because without these 11 guys, there's no book of Acts, right? So likewise, with humility, you who are younger, be subject to the elder and clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Um, I don't know about you, but I don't want to be in opposition to God. <laughs> with him, in my arrogance, or with each other, right? So we should approach this with humility. Thirdly, with reason. Isaiah 55, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, God says. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. I, you know, I, I'm, I need to have my mind changed about a lot of things. I need to think more like how God thinks about things. Hosea 14.9 says, Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the upright walk in them, but transgressors stumble in them. Uh, man, I'm longing to know what's right so I don't stumble. And by the way, I don't want to mess anybody else up around me in my stumbling either. My life verse is out of Ezra 7.10. For Ezra purposed in his heart, to study the law of the Lord and to practice it and to teach it in all Israel. Man, I, I totally resonate with that. I, I want to I study it. I want to practice it. I want to actually do it. I want to teach it with my heart. With help from others. Sometimes we need help. 
1 Corinthians 12, 28, and God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, and third teachers, then miracles and gifts of healing, helping, administration, various kinds of tongues. And so God has ordained that this is the case that we have people who are sent out, people who are proclaimers, those who are teachers, and so on. You know, I always think of uh, like the Ethiopian eunuch, right? He's on his chariot reading the scroll of Isaiah, right? And who shows up? Anybody remember? Philip shows up, right? And uh, Phil's like, hey, you know know what you got there? And he's like, well, how can I know? I need somebody to lead me. I need somebody to teach me. Right? And so we can be that for each other. We can guide each other and teach each other. It's really cool. 2 Timothy 4, 1 through 7. Let's take a look at that real quick. 24. Oh, this is cool. Towards the end of Paul's ministry here, um, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. By the way, when's that then? All the time. Okay, good. You guys are in quick study. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort. Okay, reprove. Sometimes um, I'm going to have to show you a different way of looking at it. I'm going to have to show you a different proof, if you will. Rebuke. Sometimes I'm going to have to straighten you out (laughs) that you're looking at this completely wrong, and I need to rebuke you. Or exhort. Sometimes I need to really encourage you about here is where you need to go and hold to. And by the way, when you do this, there's a way you're to do it. How? With complete patience. Okay. Well, how long is this going to (laughs) take? As long as it takes. Uh, With complete patience and teaching. Ah, there it is again. More teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but Having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. So, you know, maybe, maybe you work at a school, but you work for Christ, <laughs> right? Maybe you work for the fire department, Mark, or Mike, but you ultimately work for Christ. Um, and so doing, you have an opportunity to fill you, fulfill your ministry with wherever you are and whatever calling he has for you. Okay? And in doing so, you'll be helping others. Fifthly, as we study systematic theology, we need to do all we can to collect and understand all the relevant passages passages of the scripture on any topic. That might take some time. It might take some inconvenience to look everything up. Might have to look up some words and see what the root definitions are. Might take some study to get to the bottom of things. I don't know, for whatever reason, um, even as a freshman in college, I was working for Zondervan Family Bookstores in a mall in Peoria, and I I just long to know more about God's word. I, I, you know, it's not like my parents were beating me up or anything. I was just 
I just wanted more. And so I've started buying theological books that are building my, you know, my library. I remember my giant concordance I got. And, and then um, I got some commentary sets. I got a huge Tyndale you know, commentary set in the New Testament. I just thought it was cool because it had all these cool colors and it was, it was blue and green and, and pink. It was a really cool set. And I wanted to look studious and like I know things. And uh, Zonathan had just come out with a, a three-volume um, pictorial biblical encyclopedia. Oh, that's cool. I could get that on sale for, for that. And I just started building my library. I just wanted to know more. And then saw this awesome set. It was a he, it was a three-volume set of Hebrew, English, interlinear Bible with the numbers of the Strong's concordance for all the words right there in a, in a Greek volume, a one-volume Greek text, uh, interlinear. I'm like, oh, I want that. <laughs> so I grabbed that. Wait, I mean, I was selling insurance. I was just a layman, and I, I, I couldn't get enough of it. Started reading theological works and stuff. And I don't know what you're passionate about. I don't know what, you know, I don't know if you have that kind of curiosity where I just, I want to know more about who he is and what he's done. Remember when I first started studying Greek, I took biblical Greek from Moody Bible Institute through a correspondence class. How desperate am I to take a class? First class, seminary class I took, biblical Greek. Listening to tapes, blepo, blepo me, blepe, blepe, blepe. And, I, and I'm nailing it because this is God's word. This can make all the difference for someone. But it's going to take a lot of time to do that. I had 18 tests and a final exam. Ugh. need to collect and understand all the relevant passages of Scripture on any topic so that we can talk to people about what's true, about what matters, because it might make all the difference in their family, in their life. Oh, this is a brilliant, I love this, with rejoicing and praise. Deuteronomy 6.5, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. You know, we we should, as we're studying, and we, I, so I started taking systematic theology from, from uh, Trinity, and I, I could drive an hour to Milwaukee, not a Fort Atkinson, Wisconsin. I could drive an hour and sit under Dr. Bruce Ware, who's now at Southern Seminary. You guys, I'd be driving home after studying systematic theology with Dr. Bruce Ware. I'd be driving home in tears so blown away by the power of God's word. I was, I was being freaked out, man. Because I was being blown away by truth. And I'd been in the church my whole life. You think, well, surely you got it by now, don't you? There's always more. The Bible is an infinite resource. You can get from the bottom of it. Love your God with all your heart, all your soul, your might. Psalm 139, oh, how precious to me are your thoughts, O oh God, and how vast your sayings. And he loves us so much to give us his truth. And it's his truth that can make all the difference in our lives. 
And uh, Wayne Green was brought there in age 37. Again, I encourage if you want to invest in a text, it's a great book to have on your shelf. <coughs> it says, why should... Uh, we should study systematic theology with uh, rejoicing and praise. He says, The study of theology is not merely a theoretical exercise of the intellect. It is the study of the living God and of the wonders of all his works in creation and redemption. We cannot study this subject dispassionately. We must love all that God is, all that he says, and all that he does. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. Our response to the study of the theology of Scripture should be that of the psalmist who said, How precious to me are your thoughts, O God, as I just read. In the study of the teaching of God's Word, it should not surprise us if we often find our hearts spontaneously breaking forth in expressions of praise and delight, like those of the psalmist, Psalm 19.8. I'm just going to read through these. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. In the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as in all riches, Psalm 119. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth, Psalm 119. Your testimonies are my heritage forever, yea, they are the joy of my heart, Psalm 119. I rejoice at your word like one who finds great spoil, Psalm 119. Over and over again, this idea of praise as we encounter our living God is evoked in all of Scripture. Matter of fact, the thing that I really like probably the most of Wayne Grudem's systematic theology is that the end of every chapter, at the end of every chapter, he has a hymn <laughs> to remind us that maybe we should be praising God for these things. For this particular chapter, by way of an introduction, he has the hymn, O for a Thousand Tongues to Sing. No, I'm not going to sing it. But listen to the words. O for a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise, the glories of my God and King, the triumphs of His grace. My gracious Master and my God, assist me to proclaim, to spread through all the earth abroad the honors of Thy name. Jesus, the name that charms our fears, that bids our sorrow cease, Tis music in the sinner's ears, Tis life and health and peace. He breaks the power of reigning sin, he sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood availed for me. He speaks, and listening to his voice, new life the dead receive. The mournful broken hearts rejoice. The humble poor believe. Hear him, ye deaf. His praise, ye dumb. Your loosened tongues employ. Ye blind, behold your Savior come. And leap, ye lame, for joy. Glory to God and praise and love be ever, ever given by saints below and saints above the church and earth and heaven. I'm sorry, that's awesome. And um, if uh, that doesn't light your fire a bit, then your wood might be a bit damp. All right. So, in conclusion here, what is likely to happen to a church or denomination that gives up learning systematic theology? What's liable to happen to us if we don't study these things? Well, well said, Mike. 
Anything else anybody could add to that? Okay, false doctrines. Or should we call them fake doctrines now? <laughs> what else? No growth. No encouragement for our own souls. So what has happened here at Bethel historically? What's our story? What would you say to this? Have we historically stayed close? What do you think? Yeah. Right, right. Yeah. Thank you, John. Anybody else? Yeah. Oh, you're just waving. I see. You're just being friendly. That's good. Sorry, you're trying to get my attention. Anybody else have a thought with our history as a church and theology? Yeah. How might the study of systematic theology impact you? said nice. Awesome. Yes. Yeah. There really isn't a place where we come to where we go, well, I've arrived. Right? That includes me. I mean, I, I'm constantly in learning mode. Good. Lastly here, what are some doctrines that you're looking forward to nailing down? Yeah? Okay. Grace and tithing. Anybody else? What are some other doctrines you want to nail down? 
hematology? Okay. Okay, the study of the Holy Spirit. Okay, good. Anybody else? Okay, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah there's more. Yeah, stay tuned. Yeah. It is complicated. I've got a story on that, too. I'll tell you, that'll be in two other semesters from now, so stay tuned. <laughs> that'll be a while till we get to eschatology. But yeah, when we get to end times, um, uh, I remember when I first started studying systematic theology, when I got to the, the last component of systematic theology, I was so longing to uh, hear what Dr. Bruce Ware had to say about these things because I had so respected his viewpoint. And uh, I'll save that story for another time because I had a, an interesting experience with how that went. So, but, uh, but that was that's what I would have answered. I would have said, you know, I, I want to start the end times out. You know. Anybody else? Well, lastly, here's your memory ver passage, and uh, you'll get a, a gold star if you can say this next week. Um, Matthew twenty-eight eighteen. Uh, which goes along with our emphasis as a church. We're longing to make disciples who make disciples here at Bethel. Um, and so this really goes right along with this. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Holy uh, sorry, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. You know, in the, I love this idea in terms of this idea of making disciples as we go, uh, baptizing them, bringing people to a place of identifying themselves with Christ personally, and then teaching them. And the promise is, as we do that, as a church, as we do this, we're promised the manifest presence of Christ. And behold, I'm with you to the ends of the age. And uh, I think there's nothing better that we should long for than to have Christ with us through that little time of accomplish. Okay? All right. Well, thank you. You've been a wonderful gang of people. Um, I'm going to call on the amazing, the amazing Paul, way back there yonder, to pray to wrap us up, sir. Would you wrap us up? Thank you all. Have a great night.